0: Focusing on Genesis 15 through 20. Uh, a quick note about finding and subscribing to this podcast. If you'd like to be notified when a new episode comes out, you can subscribe to it on your favorite podcast app, whether that's Apple or Google Play or Spotify. Uh, it should be on each of those. Um, and uh, if you'd like to ask questions each week, you can do that at bit.ly ask hyphen ot that's capital ask hyphen capital o capital t and you can ask questions from past weeks as well that's just fine uh, and encouraged any question is totally legitimate and uh, i I'd, I'd be happy to speak to it this week like i said we're looking at genesis 15 through 20 and uh, the theme that underlies a lot of these chapters has to do with righteousness justice and progeny as well there's a question as to who is this God and who are these people that God is covenanted with. We know that God has made a covenant with Abram uh, as of Genesis uh, 12 and 13. But in, in terms of God's character, when we think back to what God has done so far, it, it's a little bit of a mixed bag, it seems. Yes, God did create the world and fill it with uh, all of these beautiful things. But God also brought the flood into the world. God also uh, didn't punish Cain uh, death for death. God also scattered the languages of the people from the Tower of Babel. So there's, it, it's a little bit ambivalent here as to who this God is. And then the people that God covenants with, God is covenanted with Noah, the sole survivor of this apocalyptic flood. And then God is also covenanted with Abram, who we haven't really heard much from, other than that Abram is keen on being on this divine being's good side, which I think we all would be. And Abram loves his family. He's willing to go and save his his nephew. Both of these things are good. He's also a, a shrewd tribal leader. So Throughout these next chapters, we get to know this God and and Abram who he's covenanted with a little bit more. In Genesis 15, we have this fascinating story. Uh, This is where Abram begins to, to question God a little bit more because Abram is old. He's like 90 years old at this point and has no heir. God's promised him, hey, You and your descendants are going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as as much as, as, as dust. You'll be everywhere. And Abram's just not seeing it. After you hit 90, you're probably not having a lot of children. So he needs some reassurance that God is going to be faithful to him. And God supplies that reassurance in a really interesting way. As you were reading Genesis 15, you may have been wondering, well, what the heck is going on here? Why why does God have Abram take these animals and then cut them in half? Well, what's actually going on is that in the ancient Near East, in Abram's time, when you made a covenant, instead of signing your name on the dotted line or something like that, you would, uh, the, the Hebrew here is actually, you would cut a covenant. You wouldn't make a covenant. You'd cut a covenant. And what you do is, two parties would take these animals, they'd cut them up, and they'd put, uh, uh, they'd separate the halves so that there was a path down the middle between the halves of the animals. And the two parties who were making the covenant would walk along in between the animals, uh, while essentially saying, "Let this be done to me if I do not fulfill my end of the covenant. Let let it be done to me like has been done to these animals." And therefore, they would bind themselves uh, to this covenant. So God cuts this covenant with Abram, but then puts Abram into a deep sleep. And the word here that's used is the exact same word as when God puts Adam into a deep sleep and then builds Eve out of Adam's side, out of Adam's rib. Uh, And God puts Abram into this deep sleep. And then God, and only God, walks between these animals in the form of, of this torch and this fire, essentially saying, let this happen to me if I do not give you the progeny that I have promised you. So Abram gets this reassurance that he'll have a biological heir, and God reaffirms that God's promises are sure. So going into Genesis 16, I imagine that Abram has a conversation with Sarai about this, basically saying, hey, we're going to have a kid. And, and, and Sarai gets to work with Abraham, trying to ensure that God's plan isn't thwarted. As, a, as an aside, we tend to do this a lot, don't we? Where, where we, we think, God has this plan for us, and we're going to pursue it with all our might, and darn it, God, I'm going to make sure that your promises are true. Well, you know, I think that God can make sure of that all by himself, thank you very much. <laughs> but um, Sarah and Abr- Sarah and Abram decide, well, we're going to try and 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 do what we can do in order to fulfill God's promises to us. So, uh, Sarah has this slave Hagar, and she compels the slave to become married, uh, become a concubine to Abram and provide an heir for Sarai. Uh, This would not be Sarai's biological child, but it would be her child legally because uh, Hagar is Sarai's property. So after uh, she becomes pregnant by Abram, uh, Hagar feels pretty good. Like she's she's on her way up in the world and Sarai just is terrible to her. So much that, that Hagar runs away. When Hagar's out in the desert, abandoned there by Abram and Sarai, she encounters God. And she calls God El Roy, the one who sees me. And then God tells her, God says, go back and submit to your mistress, Sarai, and you'll suffer under her. But I will, I will give you this son, Ishmael. And it's interesting. As we read Genesis, I think one of the temptations we have is to look at these characters that we see in Genesis and to think, these are God's people, and so they're going to be doing right by God. But Genesis is not a book of ethics. It doesn't tell us how to behave. In fact, the author of Genesis is remarkably silent. On this. The author of Genesis doesn't outright condemn Sarai or say that Hagar's in the right, but the author of Genesis does do this in a little bit of an indirect way. It's clear that how Sarai treats Hagar is wrong, there's no justification that's given. And Hagar and God have this conversation where God acknowledges that her mistress is being abusive. By showing what's going on in such a way that the reader can see Hagar's in the right here, the author of Genesis doesn't need to spell out a moral or ethical code. The author of Genesis can show you, and and, and that's even more effective than spelling out an ethical code, I think. We'll see this a number of times in Genesis, where the author won't outright condemn the behavior of one of the individuals, but will structure the narrative in such a way that it's pretty clear who's in the right. So after Hagar comes back, um, then God appears again. Uh, and, and God appears to, to Abram, um, and, and God takes on the name El Shaddai, so um, God has appeared to Abram a, a number of times. This is the first time that God has named uh, El Shaddai. And God promises at this point not only that Abram will have a biological heir, but that Sarah will be the mother. Excuse me, Sarai. She hasn't gotten her name changed yet. God also promises land and, and, and that nations will come from Abram. And, and this covenant is also cut. It's not cut in the same way as the last covenant was. It's cut instead on the body of all human males in Abram's family. This is the covenant of, of circumcision. Uh, it's as if God is, is naming God's own responsibility for giving progeny uh, by asking Abram and all the males in his household to trust uh, that, that this, this circumcision will not affect their ability to have progeny. God is claiming the ability to um, uh, nourish the line of Abram. Now, God also changes the name of Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. And I think that this shows us that we we can't experience God and remain the same. That's not how God works. Every experience with God is life-changing in some profound way. cycle of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Genesis 18 and 19. And uh, likely, if you've been searched, uh, you know something of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the fire and brimstone that are just dumped on it by God. Well, this story begins actually not in Sodom, but with three strangers coming and visiting Abraham. Um, And and Abraham, like like a very good host, immediately goes out and welcomes these three strangers and tells them, please, um, turn aside, stay at my tents for a moment. I know you've been traveling. You must be hungry. You must be thirsty. Let me just get you a spot of bread. Um, And and the narrative here is so neat because Abraham is just hurrying and fetching and going going here and there and here and there wanting to do anything and everything that he can to make sure that these three guests know they are welcome in Abram's in, in Abraham's tents now this type of hospitality is put in contrast with the hospitality that the two angels the, the two messengers get when they come to Sodom when they come to Sodom um they don't get welcomed very well. In fact, um, there's there are some people who will say that the sin of Sodom is when uh, all of this angry mob comes to Lot and demands to for, for Lot to turn out his guests so that they may know them, is, is what my, my biblical translation has, so that they may have sexual relations with them. So some people will argue the sin of S- Sodom is homosexuality or sodomy. And that's just not a faithful reading of scripture here. It doesn't sync up with how the scripture is 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 contextually given. Even um, later on in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 16, we read that Sodom's sin was pride. They had an excess of food and prosperous ease and failed to aid the poor and needy. Sodom's sin was a failure to offer hospitality, and it, it's not by accident that that is set in contrast to the, the deep and abiding hospitality that Abraham offers to these three strangers. And, and these three strangers, in response, uh, promised that Sarah, Sarah will be with child uh, next year. Um, and so there, there's this cynical laughter that also runs through this episode, and and we see the parallels here, where Sarah laughs cynically, uh, uh, like could I really have a child? Could I really have that pleasure? Um, and then later on, Lot's son-in-law is going to laugh cynically, like no way. What do you mean run away? We're going to stay here. Um, and and laughter will will run throughout uh, in 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 the next couple of chapters too, as as Isaac is conceived and and born. Um, So be on the lookout for that. So before the angels go down to Sodom, Abraham and God have a conversation. There is this bartering that happens between Abraham and God, and and we can see how deeply Abraham cares for his nephew's family and for the city that his nephew is living in. And so Abraham begins to emphasize this idea of justice and righteousness, Will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? Um, And and God thinks of this uh, before talking to Abraham. Um, And and we see the beginnings of who the character of this God is. This is a God that's obsessed with righteousness and justice. It's a God who who desperately wants to uh, make sure that righteousness and justice are, are endemic on the earth. So, after Abraham bar- bar- barters God down to these ten righteous or innocent people, um, we, we then flip perspectives to Lot welcoming these, these angels. And while it may seem that Lot is the one hospitable person in all of Sodom, I think we see Lot actually failing the hospitality test. Yeah, he'll, he'll care for th- these strangers, but he's also super willing to toss his daughters out to a barbaric mob without a second thought. That is not the kind of character um, that an innocent man would have. Um, While Lot's family does physically survive the destruction of Sodom, for the most part, there are four of them that leave and then Lot's wife gets turned into this pillar of salt, there's some deep woundedness that happens to his family. In fact, um, there's, there's a neat parallel and contrast with the story of Noah here as well. Lot and his daughters are sort of an antitype to, to Noah and his family. Both of them survive an apocalypse. Um, first the flood and then the fire next time. Uh, so Lot and, and his family may think we're living in the end of days. Um, and so instead of living in this city, this small city that Lot asks the angel, hey, can we turn aside to Zoar? Um, Lot then ends up taking his daughters up into these caves. He must, not, he must have never wanted to live in a city again. And so... Not only do, do both of these families survive an apocalypse, but then, um, like Noah, Lot's children take advantage of him while he's drunk. And I think that um, there's a couple of things that this story does. Not only does it uh, uh, give sort of a bad rap to two of Israel's later enemies, Moab and Ammon, like, hey, y'all were are, are conceived from incest, and that ain't right, but it also helps us to see how the culture we surround ourselves with tends to color our choices. Lot may have been a good man, and yet because he swam in the same waters that the people of Sodom did, he became uh, not a a good man, not a hospitable person, and someone who um, commits incest with his daughters. So... With all this, with this um, idea of progeny and of justice and of righteousness, all of these ideas kind of come to a head uh, in, in Genesis chapter 20, where we see the, the next instance of the sister-wife story. It may be that Abraham had told Sarah, hey, wherever we go, uh, pretend to be my sister, because that way um, neither of us is going to die on your behalf. Um, but in this case... Um, Abimelech, the, the, uh, the guy who takes Sarah into his household, he's the one that's calling for righteousness and justice. Uh, instead of the patriarch, the, the one with whom God made a covenant, Abraham, instead of Abraham being the one to insist on justice and righteousness, it's this other guy. And I think that um, in reading this story as Christians, we need to remember how open we must be to correction, from those around us, regardless of whether they serve God or not. Sometimes the people of this world get it, and we don't. And sometimes the people of this world have a more innate sense of justice and righteousness than we do. And when that happens to us, not if, but when, because it'll happen to all of us at some point or another, Instead of making excuses, like Abraham says, you know, uh, uh, this isn't part of my translation, but the way I read Abraham is like he's saying, well, to be fair, she is my sister. Um, and and he's, he's saying, your pain has a reason, right? Your pain, there's an excuse to it. That's not what we're called to do. And if you find yourself making excuses when you get called out, saying stuff like, well, you know it was this, or to be fair, this was the case, uh, I think we need to respond instead to the pain that our actions cause, even if it's unintentional. That's what it means to be people of righteousness and justice, people who are, are showing what a covenant relationship with God looks like. One of the things that uh, Peter says in his letter, and um, I believe it's chapter 4, is that judgment needs to begin with the church. We're the ones that need to be be most welcoming of God's judgment. And I think that Abraham does okay. He apologizes, but he makes excuses. Be like Abraham and apologize, but try not to make an excuse. Instead, own what you did and try to do better next time. That is all for Genesis 15 through 20. Next week, we'll focus on Genesis 21 uh, through, I believe, 26. And uh, my hope is that you'll be with us next week. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture.